All right, good evening again. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Peter Prunting. I'm just filling in tonight so Tim can be with Mary and, and get some much-needed rest and time away. Uh, we are going to be in the book of 1 John. I will tell you that the three scriptures that we have up there, we will be turning to those three um, just for the, spake, uh, the sake of space on the screen. Um, I probably have at least another 12 to 14 scripture references that we will um, reference and I will read. So I'll try to speak slow when I make that reference so in case you want to jot the reference down. Um, and certainly if you have time, uh, you can turn there. Uh, it's been a while since I taught uh, back in December, I think it was. So I'd like to go through just for myself. But again, I think it's always important whenever we open the word because um, it's been a while since I've uh, taught. Um, my three main scriptures that I go to before we even start, before I even think about preparing for a study, is Hebrews 4.12. And I'll just paraphrase and jot these off quick here. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Second Timothy 2.15, uh, we are to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And then 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof for correction and instruction in righteousness. So as always, it does not matter what scripture, what portion of scripture, it's God's word. So we do want to handle it correctly. We want to rightly divide it. And again, it's, it's there to correct us when it needs to correct us for doctrine, which we're going to be talking a lot about doctrine um, tonight in 1 John, and for instruction. So that's uh, where we're going to be. We'll I'll get through chapter 1, hopefully, tonight. This will be a little bit different than um, usually I, I dig a little deeper into uh, word studies, and you probably, if you've heard before, I, I, I do that a lot. Um, tonight I'm going to try to capture as I was praying and studying, and try to capture the es essence of John, the author, and the audience he was writing to, and why it was that he was writing to them. Um, we'll, we'll dig in a little bit, but um, I'll be emphasizing that a lot, because I really want us to understand why the Holy Spirit used John to write to the group that he did. And obviously, if we just stop there, we're just reading another book. But more importantly, we know the word is alive, so what is what we're going to learn tonight? How does that apply to us, and how does it instruct us and speak to us? So I'll start, and we'll read through the entire chapter, and then I'll come back and just we'll kind of uh, do a little background and then chew off uh, a few scriptures here and there and work our way back again through the, the, um, the text. So chapter 1, the first epistle of John. That which was the beginning, from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship 
is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and walk in darkness, we lie, and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So before we um, get into the specific verses, I want to give you a little bit of a background, as always I I try to do, um, on what's going on um, according to the historians and, you know, some of the, um, the, the scholars as far as the background. Obviously, this is the first epistle. Of, of John, there will be um, the second epistle and the third epistle, which uh, if the Lord would tarry and I get the chance, we'll go through that later. But he is the author that God used to pen the Gospel of John. He is the author of this first epistle, and he's also the author of the book of Revelation. So the next, the, the next thing we always ask is, okay, who is the audience here? Because he he references once here, he's obviously writing to a group of people. He references in here little children, um, and he will, as he goes on in the book, he's going to reference little children several times. So who was the audience? Well, obviously, we can concur that he was writing to believers uh, in that day. We don't know specifically, in some of the other books, um, James, for example, In the very first verse, he says, I'm writing this to the 12 tribes that were scattered abroad. In 1 Peter, in his first uh, verse, he uh, lists the different areas of the believers that he's writing to in there. This one, all the scholars that I read, they can't definitively agree on exactly who the audience is. Um, and again, I made reference to it in chapter 2. It says, my little children. And, and when we get into the next chapter, you'll see him over and over repeat this phrase, my little children. So it would seem as though these were you know, uh, believers that, that Paul was writing to. Maybe they were, or John, sorry. Maybe they were converts of his. Um, you know, we, we can just suspect that they were believers. Now, one thing that I don't know, and when I was... Digging in, nobody really talked about it. I can only assume that John was inspired to write the Gospel of John. It seems in time that this would be after the Gospel of John, so I don't know if this group that he's writing to, are they new converts? Are they the same group that, the, that heard the Gospel of John? I don't know categorically if the group that he's writing to all literally saw and you know uh, Jesus or if they just heard of him. Um, So I just want to make that very clear. Uh, Norman Geiser, in his popular survey of the New Testament, in his opinion, what he stated is that he believed they were mostly Greek-speaking Jewish churches with uh, Gentile 
believers. But again, I wouldn't be dogmatic about exactly who they were and exactly where they were because that is unknown, uh, you know, 100% uh, for us. Um, again, where was this? It's, it's not, at least in the scriptures, like in other books, we're not told exactly where it is. And again, some scholars believe that it was in Asia Minor, which would be modern Turkey. So then we go to the, the time frame of it. Um, within 10 or 15 years, most of the scholars were generally in the historians had it between the uh, time of 90 and 95 A.D., and again, it seems as though the epistles of John would have been shortly after he wrote the Gospel of John. And then that begs uh, to ask the question, why is he writing it, which is why we're here tonight and we're going to dig into it. Big picture, um, he wanted them, we're going to see very early on here, he wanted them to continue in fellowship. You can see that fellowship is an important thing that he talks about. Even in the first chapter, he references it four times. Um, he wanted to warn them, and that's what most of our study is going to be on the warning against heresy. Um, if I can ask you to move over to chapter 2, uh, verse 18 and 19, and this will give us a little perspective of uh the warning that he wanted to give to his little children. He says in verse 18, Little children, it is the last time, and as you have heard, that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. And again, we will shortly get into John wanting to um, make sure that they're solidified in their doctrine. So obviously, one of the reasons why he's writing it is he wanted to warn his little children against this group that seemed like they were believers, but they weren't, and they actually were spreading a lot of heresy. Um, and then also in, this, in, the, uh, in the verses 8, 9, 10, he uh, wrote it to exhort them not to sin. And then we'll see later on that he, he wanted to assure them of salvation. So again, when we look at overall the first chapter in John, not the entire book, when I just look at some of the repeated words and the themes, it's light versus dark. It's fellowship, which again is mentioned four times. Um, he does mention, I think it's very important, uh, to, he talks about walking, um, how they are to walk. And again, from the a study I did in Ephesians, walk means to um, that we are living in such a way. It's like an active you know, uh, representation of how you are living, you are walking. And, and then one of the other main points, obviously, this could have easily... Uh, been titled, um, God is Light, uh, but I, I chose uh, from verse 4 that your joy may be full because I, I think the times in which we live, it's good to get centered on just exactly who Jesus is, who our God is um, amidst all the craziness. And so it's my hope that we can at least finish the study and all say that our joy uh, will be full. So, 
I mentioned that I wanted to try to, as much as I can without us not being there, get us into the mind frame of the audience, the, the recipients that would be uh, reading this epistle, this letter that John sent to them. So to help do that, I want to tell a little story. It's a true story. And I, I don't want to tell the story just uh, to tell you, even though it is true and it, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. But I'm telling you the story because it's a real story. And I'm hoping as soon as we get to uh, reread uh, John here in a minute that you'll understand the application of why I'm telling you the story. Um, uh, I guess, first of all, you don't have to raise your hands, but I would just like to ask if, if people have ever heard um, by, by word of mouth, by textbooks, by the news, if they've ever heard of um, the Holocaust, if they've ever heard of the... Um, name Auschwitz or Birkenau has have most people heard that has anybody physically ever gone to any of the concentration camps or talked to um, anybody that was alive uh, during the extermination of Jews um, that lived in that time has anybody okay a few of you have and so First, I want to say I, I'm not a big online person and Googling stuff, but it is kind of handy. You can Google it. You'll find countless articles, people, uh, they have following. But there is still, after all of the evidence in this world, there is a unbelief in the world today. Um, there is an on, UK online journal called The Independent that in, the, in their article, they report that 23% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 39 believe the Holocaust is a myth, okay? I would say these people are heretical in nature. Generally, when you talk about heretical, it has to do with, with a religious connotation, with religious, but they... These people that, um, some of them are very scholarly, some of them have many followers, they've written books, they hold an opinion that is at odds what is generally accepted by our world. That's what a heretic in general is. So these people that believe this are, are heretics. So those of you who have not visited a concentration camp or maybe had a first-hand chance to talk to anybody, I just wanted, this is where I wanted to tell you a little bit of, um, I guess, our story. My wife, Eva, those of you who know her, she um, is actually from Poland, and she grew up in a Polish town called Oświęcim, which when the Germans came to occupy it, they named Auschwitz. The, the whole world knows it by the name of Auschwitz. So she grew up, just to give you a little um you know, account of her life. When she grew up, um, there were times, uh, stories her mother told her where she actually witnessed shootings. Her mother lived in a little village right outside of Auschwitz, and sometimes German soldiers would come there and just want food and sleep there, and they would want to occupy. So Eva has first-hand knowledge from her mother of things that had happened. Um, Eva, when she was in school, you know, lots of times when they were doing a documentary at Auschwitz, 
they would gather her whole class up when she was in grade school and they were going to be, you know, because they were younger and they were smaller, they were going to be extras in the documentaries that were filmed at Auschwitz. So she has some real life experience. And we had a chance to talk when we lived there for three years from 2004 to 2007 to many, many of the older Polish people that were still alive. And some of them would recount when they were little kids, you know, 10, 11, 12, riding on their bike by the concentration camp, maybe to go to school or whatever. They were absolutely petrified because if they even looked or or did anything, you know, because the German soldiers were guarding it, they were always fearful that they may get pulled into the concentration camp because they heard what was going on. So those are real-life accounts that Eva had. Then if you just look at the Auschwitz Museum, if any of you have been there, um, I have never been to Yad Vashem. I've heard of people that it's incredible. Um, But Auschwitz... um, the the Germans kept meticulous records. So when you go there, we have seen written documentation from every single name of prisoners, what country they came from. We we've seen physical evidence of you know a whole room full of human hair that is still there that was that was cut off of the prisoners. We we saw the the name of luggage is a whole big room, probably twenty feet by. 10 feet high, and you see luggages from that time period with, with the name of the family on there. Um, eyeglasses. The documentation and the real physical evidence goes on and on and on. It is there. We have seen it. And then just a few more eyewitness accounts. Somewhere 2004 maybe, uh, when we first got there, we used to uh, visit Birkenau, which is technically called Auschwitz II. And uh, it was literally a half a mile from where we were living. So we would go there often for walks or we would just go to um, the camp. And there was one time when we were, we were there and we were going around. And we went to the back where they had some monuments. And uh, there, there's always foreigners from, from everywhere around the world. And there was, a, um, there was a guy that was at a particular memorial. And he was kind of crying and weeping. And there was... Um, I don't know, French students or whatever that were there, but spoke English. And they were very concerned, and they asked what this gentleman was crying about. So my wife translated, and this gentleman was probably in his 70s, but he it was very still very, very emotional and broken up. He had said that he came there all the time just to kind of you know pay homage to um, the different people who lost their life. But in Birkenau, which is a very, very big uh, space, he used to live there as a young boy. When the Germans came, they mowed down his house and said, you know, and then they pushed him somewhere else. But he literally was weeping, um, just remembering what happened as a young boy. And he uh, said that he was there, for those of you who have seen Schindler's List and the famous train coming in, that's where he used to live. He got displaced. He could hear, um, the even above the music that they played, he could hear the prisoners that were getting off of the trains, and he could hear the, the shooting, you know, and I don't want to be too graphic, but the point is, this young, he was a young boy at that time in his 70s, he recounted for us, he literally lived on that property before his family got kicked out. And then there was one other uh, major, I guess, event that we had. Uh, we lived 
there for three years. There was a, 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 a woman who spoke here years ago. She has passed on now, but her name is Fella. She used to live in Manitowoc. But anyway, we kept in contact with Fella, and when she traveled there for the 60th anniversary in 2005, we had the, on one hand it was an honor, on the other hand it was very, very difficult um, to be there, but we met her. People, Jews from all around the world came to, um, for the 60th year liberation of the concentration camps. And we went on a tour. We've been on many tours, but we went on a tour to the different buildings, you know, where they have the gas chambers and everything. And um, my wife was constantly translating when she could. But these people were prisoners there when they were young children. And they were coming back 60 years later. And all of the, the memories were coming back and so forth. Okay, why, why am I telling you all of this? Um, I'm sure many of you know. I'm telling you all of this because many of you have only heard or maybe read in a book that there was a Holocaust, that there was an Auschwitz. What I'm trying to convey to you, as I'm hoping we're going to see in John's letter, I'm trying to convey to you physically what we saw. We saw with our evidence with our eyes, we met people who were in that concentration camp when it got liberated, you know, that that 60 years ago. I am I am trying to give you factual evidence of something that really did happen and to give you our account, which you don't have the, you know, benefit of, of having. So with that background, and again, I told you I was trying to think of a way in which we can understand who John is writing to, and we can put you know, ourselves in the audience or the receiver of this letter to understand what it was that John was trying to tell them, that maybe they didn't have the firsthand knowledge that John did. So let's reread verses 1 and 2. Chapter 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. So again, the reason I told the story is, you know, my wife and I had first-hand knowledge. And again, to my, my first point, I don't know a lot of the reading and studying I did. I don't know if this entire group, if they physically saw Jesus, or, you know, maybe they weren't close enough. But John is writing because he wants to let them know that he has evidence. What does he say? I mean, his main theme is he wants them to know that the Son of God appeared in the flesh, that which was from the beginning, which we have. And he talks in the we, more than likely what he's referring to as the apostles, the ones that had the firsthand knowledge to hear of Jesus, to be with Jesus, to touch Jesus. He's letting them know that that he has heard, uh, seen, which, again, when we think about seeing, that's more than just, you know, that is a, a look or, or a quick observation. 
looked upon, that brings along a little more of a pro- prolonged period. It has a sense of you're, you're, you're not only seeing something, but your eyes are wide open. And again, John would have had that because he spent time directly with the Lord. And then he said, handled. Notice he said, and our hands have handled. Again, he was with Jesus every day. He was walking with him. Um, he was able to you know, eat with him, literally touch him. So again, the reason I told you the story is I wanted to give you an idea of a modern day example. And the reason I picked that example is we're going to learn here quickly that just as in today when people are heretics and they refute what is generally accepted by the entire world even though there's evidence, that's exactly what was going on in John's time, not more than 90 years after the Lord you know, had returned to his father, not more than 90 years, and, and there were people that were denying it. And, and so it was important for him to let his readers know that the Son of God wasn't just a word, it wasn't just a folklore, this was something that he had first-hand knowledge and was able to hear, was able to look, was able to gaze upon, and was able to literally touch. Um, this is when I'd like to go to a cross-reference be- to John uh, chapter 20, please. We have just a few cross-references from John Really, I see the epistle. Again, the epistle is speaking directly to the audience and and talking a lot about doctrine, but it's really a continuation of what John wrote in his gospel, what he penned under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So we have John 20, verses 30 and 31. And even though the book, the entire book isn't done, what John is really saying is this is uh, what the whole gospel that he wrote hinges upon. And he said, In many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And then if we could uh, move over to uh, John chapter 1, and we'll go through the first 14 verses. And again, you, this is all very um, common language and a common theme of what John is trying to make sure his audience knows. So verses 1 through 14, the gospel according to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. 
But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So you can see from the epistle of John in just the first uh, two verses, very similar to just a few verses that I pulled out um, of John, that it's very, very common in, in his writing, in his purpose. He wants people to know that Jesus Christ was sent from God, that he is the Son of God, and that he, yes, did appear in the flesh in the humanly form. Um, so what was another reason that John wrote that? Um, one of the reasons, and, and John doesn't specifically call out um, you know, names. There are books in the Bible where Paul wrote and, and specifically called out names and said, you know, don't have fellowship with this person. But here, John is, is writing, and he's writing to believers, but he's writing because of the heresy that is going on in his day. So really what he was doing was he was writing to refute the practices of essentially of three groups. And, and the more I never realized there were so many different sects back then that did not believe the tenements of the faith, again, only 90 years after. But essentially he was writing to the, about the Nicolaitans, the practices of the Nicolaitans, the Gnostics, and the Carpocratians. And I'll go into the Carpocratians a little more because it seemed like they had um, quite a bit of influence at the time. So just a few quick little words. A lot of the scholars believe that one of the sects that were influencing or were on the scene at the time were uh, the sect of the Doacete. And this sect basically believed, yes, Jesus was there. You know, he moved around. He said what he said. They weren't denying any of that, but they said he really wasn't there. It was like a, you know, like a smoke and mirror show, like it was a phantom that he really wasn't there. So that's what the, the Doacete sect, a specific sect, and then basically this sect believed in Doceteism, which was, again, that Christ's suffering, they weren't denying that Christ suffered, but they, they said it was only apparent. Again, it might seem like a small distinction distinction, but as we get into this, it is very much contrary to everything that up until John's time that that happened, the accounts, the word of God, um, they were saying that Jesus was there, but he was a phantom, and it was only, his suffering was only apparent that he really didn't suffer. And again, I mentioned heretic is a person that holds to an opinion that are odds with what generally is accepted religiously at that particular time. And then you have Gnosticism. Um, and again, all of these, you can dig, and I just tried to real high level talk about what some of these sects and these uh, beliefs were at, at the time of John. So you have Gnosticism. The, the danger here is they were partly Christian in origin with their doctrine, but they believed that the world was created and ruled by a lesser divinity. 
And then uh, we're going to talk in just a second on the Carp- Carpocratians. But one of the things that they held to was this thing called esoteric knowledge. I don't know if, uh, but most Gnostics would believe in this. And um, the, the reason they believed in it is they believed that you, in your mind, you could um, have a special knowledge that only a small group of people could have. And they actually believed, some of them, that you, in your own mind, in, get, in, in, in reaching an enlightenment, that you could actually, they didn't deny Jesus, but you, they said you could actually become more important and, and have more divinity than, than Jesus. And again, this is very heretical at its nature, but the point I want us to see is we're going to make some applications. But this, you know, all the stuff we see in the news, Pastor Dwight's constantly educating us, warning us, whatever. This is nothing new. It was in the very beginning, and this is why John is writing to his audience. So the car, Pocratians, it was a Gnostic sect. These are just some of the things that they believed in this sect. They looked at the entire world like we do, and matter, all matter, was evil. Spirit was good, and salvation was gained through this esoteric knowledge. Again, only a select few who have the ability and the mind to reach this level, that's how salvation was gained. Jesus, again, most of these sects didn't deny Jesus, but they denied who Jesus was. Jesus was not a redeemer, but was an ordinary man. And some of these Carpo uh, Christians, what they held to was that, again, this esoteric knowledge, they believed and claimed that they could communicate with demonic spirits. So, Can you see how twisted it is? They didn't deny that Jesus was really... On the earth at that time, they weren't questioning what he did. But again, they said, well, his resurrection or the suffering he went through really wasn't real. It really wasn't him. I can, through my knowledge, actually attain salvation. I don't need salvation through Jesus. And they also claim to communicate with demonic spirits. So they were very convoluted in their doctrine only 90 years after the Lord, you know, was with was with them. And again, I don't know if these sects, I think it would be a, a broad jump to say that these different sects at that time were, were the people from 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19 that I read. But John said, he mentions Antichrist, and he said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. So I don't know that they're the ones that started the sect, but they certainly were adhering and believing to all of these different sects out there. This is why John is writing. He wants his little children, he wants his believers, he wants to make sure that he's giving them sound doctrine and eyewitness account of Jesus. So naturally, the application is, we have to ask our, ourselves the question, who is Jesus Christ to you? Who is Jesus to me? And, you know, you see this in, in a lot of people you talk to. You can talk about Jesus. They say they believe in Jesus. You ask a few more questions, and sometimes 10 or 15 minutes into the conversation, you can very quickly find out that 
the Jesus that they're talking about is very similar to these Gnostic sects some 2,000 years ago. So, you know, I think it's, it's good for us to always do an inventory and who is Jesus to us? Is he a historical figure like a lot of people? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Is he a good person? A lot of people say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. He, he suffered, died, and rose again. He's a good person. Maybe a name in the Bible. Um, is he a phantom figure like the one sect I told you? They, they believe that he was there, but he wasn't there. And, and quite honestly, um, if we can go to 1 Corinthians right now, if, and the reason I'm really camping on this is if we do not believe everything the word says about Jesus and who he is, because it's more than just, you know, he's, this, he's the son of God and, and this is his name. It's much more than that. Um, this is a, a scripture that always um, kind of hammers home to me that Paul wrote to the believers at that time. And again, Paul wrote because people were questioning for a different reason. They were questioning that there was no resurrection. But again, if there isn't a real Jesus, then I guess we don't need to worry about the resurrection. But let's read what Paul said in First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then are preaching vain? And your faith is also in vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Yet are you yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. In this life only we have hope in Christ. We are of all men most miserable. And the reason I'm making such a point is we cannot just say, I mean, we, Jesus is our Lord and Savior. But we can, we have to make sure when we're speaking with other people and even for ourselves, who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. But he has to be everything that John was saying he was um, all the way up to the resurrection and past the resurrection. And that's why... I read Corinthians because Paul was making a point in his day. They were saying that, you know, there was no resurrection. And I'm just wanting to camp on this because we need to ask ourselves, who is our Jesus? You know, is he the creator of the world? So I'm going to kind of rifle through some scriptures here that, that um, hopefully will help us. Genesis 1, verses 1 through 4. Again, Genesis 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens. And the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the earth. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. Is Jesus our Savior? He must be, right? Because if he's not our Savior, then everything we're doing is, is pointless. He's our Redeemer. Luke 2.11 says... For unto you is born this day in the city of David 
a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And uh, I just grabbed a few terms of what, for a, a believer in this day and age, um, the tenements of our faith, just a few, who Jesus is to us. He is our propitiation, which means atonement or the exchange. In 1 John 2.2, 2, it told us, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. And then in John 4.10, he said, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the perpetuation for our sins. It is important because if we would believe even a trifle amount of what any of these sects believed, then, then he couldn't, you know, um, be our savior. He couldn't uh, do the great exchange for us. We could not be saved. We could not go to heaven. And that's why I'm really camping on it. So when we ask the application of what was going on at this time, how about for our own lives? What sect or heretical teaching Gnosticism is out there that is disguised or intermingled as Christianity that we need to be aware of, maybe need to be warned of? And I have to tell you, I am not, this is not an area that, I mean, I'm vaguely familiar, but I'm not uh, well-versed in, apolo- in apologetics. I don't know everything that's out there, just you know what I hear at church and, and fellowship with others. But I think it's, you know, one of the points I had here is if it happened in John's day, so shortly after our Lord went to be um, with his father, are we surprised that we are seeing it in our day? Just three things that, again, this is not everything that they believe. This is just a high level what they believe. Universalism. God would not only choose to select a certain number of people and be restrictive. I mean, in, it goes deeper than that, but basically that's what universalism is. Um, I didn't know this was out there. There is uh, something, a group called Oneness Pentecostals. They do believe that there is a God. The God was manifested himself in three ways, but they were not distinct persons. And they did believe in the deity of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And again, I don't have time to go into it, but obviously the distinction that they're making that they weren't distinct persons when theologically and doctrinally, when you look at it, that's a big problem. But that's what they believe. And we've all heard of uh, Jehovah Witnesses. Just one of the things, I guess, that jumps out to me is they did not phys- they did not believe that Jesus physically rose from the grave. Which again, we learned from Paul: if Jesus did not rise from the grave, then we're we're men most miserable in this life. We have no hope. So those were just three of the the modern day. Um, sex, if you will. And, and again, I made the point about John, and I just I mentioned Pastor Dwight. Again, it's, it's not pleasant for any pastor that is wanting to hold to the word to, to maybe talk about some of these things. But again, as, as John was concerned about the little children, who these believers were, he was wanting to make sure, and I'm hoping that you see that as we're going through here, that there was false doctrine out there. So he wasn't necessarily in the letter talking about 
specific groups or what they believed, but because of what he wrote, he wanted to solidify for them that all of this information from the Gnostics and the sects was, was false. So if we can now read verses 3 through 7, um, verse 3, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard him of, heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But... If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So remember in the beginning I told you, you know, whenever you go through a chapter or a segment, you know, just jot down. You don't have to do like full IB. Just jot down common um, phrases or, or words, and you start to very quickly see the intent of the author on the subject He's talking about darkness and light, talking about walking in the light, and he's talking a lot about fellowship. So again, uh, due to sake of time, I don't have a, a, a lot of time to talk about fellowship, but we've all the, heard the word kononia, fellowship. Um, you know, in essence, the, the word, when you, when you look at it deeper, it's more than just getting together. I mean, you know, I do it all the time. Yeah, I'm having some fellowship with the brother and I'm drinking a coffee with him, and that is fellowship, but... It means, uh, in, in the text in which we're reading, it means a partnership, that you're partnering with somebody. It means um, partnership, and it's a very descriptive word, um, but when I was looking in the Greek, one of the definitions they gave for uh, a fellowship that I, I like, it means social intercourse. I mean, that is a pretty you know, descriptive word. It's not just... You know, I'm sitting on the front porch with my friend who's a Christian having a cup of coffee. It is a participation. It is really, you know, the word says iron sharpening iron. So fellowship. Um, I just want to rattle off a couple scriptures here. I'm just trying to be uh, cognizant of the time. First Corinthians 9 says, God is faithful by whom we were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And again, John hits this in verses 3 through 7. He's saying, listen, if you're walking in the light, then you have fellowship with us, and you have fellowship with us, then you have fellowship with the Father, and we all have fellowship with one another. Um, 2 Corinthians uh, 6, verses uh, 14 through 16, we all know this one pretty well. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship... And again, think of the term that I just told. This isn't just a casual, you know, working side by side with somebody at work that you have to work with for eight hours. Fellowship. What did I say? Social intercourse. For what participation um, fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Um, and what communion has light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel. So again, this use of the word fellowship. And then um, the title of the message was that your joy may be f full. And uh, if we just look at 
verses 1, 2, and 3, John's purpose, I believe, was to encourage them. I don't know the level of how much these sects were influencing them, but he said, and these things write we, again, he says we, I believe he's talking in general about the apostles, we write unto you, why did he write these things? That their joy may be full. And I can only surmise that maybe some of them were being influenced, maybe they were baby believers, uh, maybe they were questioning things, and that's why John wrote it. I, I don't know categorically, but there's a reason he wants their joy to be full, and he wanted to write and, and take so much time to let them know that he physically saw, heard, and touched our Lord. Um, and again, joy just means kind of to have a cheerfulness, calm delight. So uh, real quickly, the application. You know, the first thing I go to, okay, John wanted them to have their joy be full by what he wrote. Um, I need to ask myself the question, do I have joy? You know, um, and I'll ask myself as well as you the question, you know, do you feel at times like the world, the, the worldly system, the evil that's around us, maybe it's, it's pressing on you, you just you, you feel troubled, uh, maybe you're, you're discouraged by all the evil that you see. Um, you know, the thing is, we should take great comfort in knowing who Jesus is and what he is to us. And, um, you know, so our joy can be full. And just uh, four scriptures, there's many of them that I thought would encourage us. Ephesians 1, 6 through 7, and all of these talk about the riches that we have as believers in Christ. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2, 5 through 7. Even when we were dead in sins, that's all of us, he has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 3.16, when uh, he, Paul was writing, he said that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. And then the last one is Philippians 4.19, but my God, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Got a race to the finish here. So um, I read verses 3 through 7, and we, we talked about uh, your joy being full. So let's look at the God is light walking in the light. Um, we are to walk, and I mentioned earlier that walk means, you know, it's, a, it's an active word, like, you know, what you're doing. The, the Greek word, um, which I found this very interesting when I tra uh, checked, you know, we think about walking like, okay, we're walking like that, and it does have that connotation, but in the Greek it means to trample, to tread down, or a path, which I think is very significant when you look at the Greek word, because, you know, I could say, well, I'm walking to the neighbor, you know. Um, well, I might walk across there once, and yeah, I'm, I'm literally walking, but the thing is, I'm not 
I'm not walking so much that they're that the the ground is being trampled down and making a path. And I think it's important because again, he is saying to the believers, they if you walk in the light. He's not just talking about a casual, okay, I'm going to do this once. He's talking about an active, consistent treading down a path. And what does he say? In the light. And again, um, the, the Greek word for light in, in the scriptures in which we're looking is a, um, a word, phose, uh, which basically means to make manifest or to illuminate. Um, for sake of time, I'm going to kind of skip over, but I, I went to Vine's Expository Dictionary. It's a dictionary to look up all the meaning of words, and, and he kind of lays out scripturally all of the references to light, which I, I didn't even imagine how many there were until I started looking. Um, but then he kind of talked about physically, and um, obviously, you know, light is something that can be seen by the eye, um, if we didn't have eyes, we could not see. So it's the expression of light. Um, and I liked what he said here. Now, this isn't scriptural or spiritual, but he said, physically, when you talk about light, light requires an organ adapted for its reception. Where the eye is absent or has been impaired, light is useless. And again, I, I'm not speaking a lot about darkness right now on purpose, but darkness in, in its essence means that it's obscure. So light, you know, illuminates. Uh, so right away when I read that, what I thought about is 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. In a way... And we can't fully develop it. We, we, we know that Jesus is light and we're supposed to walk in a light and we're not supposed to. We're supposed to let our light shine. But, but in essence, we were walking around in darkness until that day that we totally surrendered and became uh, Christians. We, we didn't have the organ or the capacity to see the light, but all of a sudden we now had it and we could see the light. Um, scientific definition is it just makes vision possible. And again, that's one of the things is when we look to our Savior, he is the light of the world. He said in here, um, if we will walk, you know, in the light, then we will be in fellowship. He said, Jesus, uh, when he was speaking to his disciples after the Beatitudes, he said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. To Nicodemus, when he was going through his whole discourse with Nicodemus and said, you must be born again later on, at the end of that, he said to him, and this is condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They did not have the capacity to have the vision to see the light, which was Jesus. John eight twelve. then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness or obscurity, I, I would say, but shall have the light of life. And then the last one, there's many of them, but I pulled out, as long as I am in the world, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So the application when we talk about walking in the light, you know, what path am I, what path are you walking or treading down in this Christian pilgrimage 
of yours. You know, what, what are we doing every day? Um, and are we following the light of the world? You know, we must seek the Lord in prayer, obey his word, and desire, as he said, to, he said, he that follows me shall not walk in darkness. It's easy, but yet it's difficult. But if we follow the Lord, then we are going to walk in the light. Um, and then real quick, 8, 9, and 10, um, in about 30 seconds, I just want to quickly say that he talked about sin, and we're going to develop this more if I have the chance. But he said, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. The reason he said that is that there was a group of Gnostics that, uh, again, they denied that Christ suffered, but they denied that they had any sin at all and needed a Savior. And then there, there was another group of the Nicolaitans that, um, you know, they did not believe this, um, that you had sin. They believed, they, they were saying that they believed in the tenements, um, but yet they were living, you know, a total life devoid because they, they said now they had Christian liberty. Ninety years after Christ died, this is what they were doing. Paul doesn't mention them, but as you dig in and you see that that is the reason he's making such a point that, you know, if you say that you have no sin, you deceive yourself. And, and so I just want to finish up with the scriptures tell us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. And Jeremiah 17.9, uh, we all know this scripture, the heart is deceitfully deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it? I think if we really search our hearts, as the psalm says, search me, O God, and know my heart, we, we know that we're sinners. We know we are saved by grace. But again, my, my goal was that you would understand, we would understand why John was writing this and, and the audience that was hearing it, why he was using the language and talking about the doctrine that he did, and Lord willing, if we have a time in the future, I will continue to study and we'll go through the other chapters. So let's look to the Lord. Uh, Father, I know I was pretty rushed, but um, we just thank you for your word. Um, a lot of doctrine in First John, and Lord, you wrote First John that the believers would be assured that you came from the Father, you came to this earth, you paid for our sins, and you rose again. And so, Father, I just pray if there's anybody here listening online or if we have friends that are struggling with even the smallest error of Gnosticism, of a, a sect, of not believing everything about you, Jesus, then I just pray that you'd give us wisdom to, to help them, that you'd just encourage us, Lord, um, may our joy be full if we really think about what you did, who you are, and what you have promised for us yet, Lord. Our joy should be full. And Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for dying on the cross for us. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.